Welcome to the Hill City Podcast. This is a recording of the weekly gathering from Hill City Church. We exist to help people follow Jesus and build their lives around three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. If you'd like to join us, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Caustic Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan. We hope that today's message will help you follow Jesus. about you but for me this has nothing to do with uh, the message today but oh I just so look forward to Sundays to be with you guys I don't I, I know I've said that to some of you guys but man it was a busy week this week and it's great to be alone with Jesus in the mornings and be in his presence but there's just something else about gathering with his people together and worshiping together and so 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 grateful for you guys to be here today yes uh, I'm so excited for that um, so thanks for being here in the, this morning, worshiping with us. We are so glad to have you here. We are in the midst of a series called On Earth As It Is in Heaven, where we have been walking through Jesus' most famous sermon of all time, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And over time, what Jesus has been doing, and we've been kind of discovering this over the past couple months, is he has been going through and revealing what life in the kingdom looks like, what life in the kingdom is all about. In fact, that is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a discourse in discipleship. It is a picture about how do we live here and now in a way that ushers God's kingdom in, not just to be something that we experience one day, but something that we can experience now. And the temptation in this in this passage, these couple chapters, is to look at them and read them and sit back and say, this is what I need to do. I have to do these things to bring in the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is really revealing in these passages is he's revealing that this is more who you need to be. There's a vast difference between being someone and doing something. Jesus is inviting us to be someone who ultimately instills and values the very kingdom of heaven, and out of that being flows our doing. And we have been talking about things like anger. Uh, We've been talking about things like our witness to the world, uh, the lust that we have in our hearts. Adam talked about that a few weeks ago. And so we've been discovering together what does it look like for us to to allow our hearts to be transformed. And today, we move on to one of the most significant and important things in all of our lives, the relationships that we have with the people around us. And that word relationship plays a different, or holds a different weight for everyone in this room because we all have different kinds of relationships. Some relationships are great. Some relationships are more difficult. Some relationships are full of tension. Some relationships are just plain hard or we feel like impossible to have. Danielle and I lived in Philadelphia for oh, a few years, and you know that city is known as a city of brotherly, lo- brotherly love, but if you've been there at times, it doesn't always feel like that. Um, this is the same city that threw snowballs at Santa. Uh, these are the same uh, people who will beat you up if you're wearing the opposing football team's jersey, right? I mean, like, they got some harsh people, but I will say, in the midst of kind of uh, tilting my head at that city of brotherly love uh, uh, nickname that they had earned, when we moved into our house in Philadelphia, we had some of the greatest neighbors of all time. Uh, this old couple <clears throat> whose name was Merle and Betty. And Merle and Betty, they were in their uh, mid to late 70s at the time. 
and they were uh, just the best. You guys, are, you guys remember the TV show Home Improvement, and uh, uh, the main character, his neighbor was Wilson, and you never actually saw his full face. You only saw like this part of his face over the fence, right? Merle was like our Wilson. Like he would be like that sage that we could go to to ask questions with, and you know, we had moved away from home. We grew up in this area, and so we were in Philadelphia away in our first house. We didn't know what we were doing, and so I'd like go over, and I'd ask Merle like, hey, this is not working. How do I fix this? And he would come, and he would tell me, and then he'd give me every tool that he owns to do it, and it was awesome. I didn't have to go to Home Depot. Uh, he, would, he would put signs over our fence and hang them on our fence whenever the Lions beat the Eagles, which was only one time, uh, but it happened one time, and he put it over, and he said, we're now officially Lions fans. Uh, when the Tigers beat the Phillies, he'd put a sign that said, go Tigers. You know, I mean, just awesome. When, when a storm came through and, and ruined a section of our fence, I go outside, and I see him repairing our fence. I didn't even have time to get up. He was just over there wanting to help. And I remember one time, and this is when I felt like our friendship had shifted from friends to really like family. I was out mowing the lawn, and I saw Merle approaching me just weeping. And he had just gotten off the phone. His son-in-law had passed away suddenly in a motorcycle accident. And I turned off the lawnmower, and I didn't know what was going on. And he hears this man in his late 70s just falling into my arms weeping and saying I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and so I was there with him when he called his wife to communicate this news I mean just just these you walk through these seasons of life with these people who are just incredible friends and relation you have incredible relationships with and you wouldn't necessarily have thought it. I would have thought to myself, these are probably not the people we're going to connect super well with because of how much older they were than us. But man, they were some of the best people. And yet still today, they write us letters, comment on all of our Facebook posts, every single one. Uh, and so if you ever see a comment from a, a Merle or a Betty, that's them. Uh, and so, um, and we just, we just adore this couple. And, and it's sometimes relationships are easy, like that one. Like that was just one of those ones that I was like, this is easy. I wish every neighbor could be like Merle and Betty. But let's be honest, then there's other times when you have kind of difficult relationships, ones that you're like, when are they going to put up their house for sale? You know, like, maybe today is the day. Like, is it, is it today? I hope so, you know, kind of a thing, right? And you just, ne- you know, you never know. And, and the interesting thing is Jesus talks about our neighbors, but he's not talking about our physical neighbors, but the people that we are in relationship with. And he says, how do you walk in ways with the people around you that ushers in the kingdom of heaven. And because he knew that this was such a significant part of our lives, thankfully he devotes a significant part of Matthew chapter 5 to the discussion of relationships. And again, because of how the Sermon on the Mount is laid, it's not about what you must do in your relationships, but rather he's revealing who we can become as a result of the relationships around us. And so we want to discover who we can become in our relationships as we continue on looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do that in Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And if you've not been with us, this this is a common rabbinical phrase, a phrase that rabbis would use to discuss uh, kind of their teaching of the law of Moses, what we find in the Old Testament. So again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. 
But I tell you, so now what's following is Jesus' teaching where he reveals ultimately the heart of the truest meaning of this, of this command. He says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, where it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I've tested that theory. It is true, uh, as much as I've tried. Uh, unfortunately, you cannot do it. And all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In this passage, Jesus is inviting you and I to become someone through our relationships. And he is inviting us in this passage to be a person who speaks truth to others. Someone who speaks truth to others. Lying was a problem in Jesus' day, just like it's a problem today. I did some research around lying in our world and our culture today, and here's what I discovered. In a 10-minute conversation, people tell an average of 3.3 lies, which equals uh, once every three minutes or so. Another study concluded that we are lied to every five minutes, which makes out an average of 200 times a day. Even another study I found said that 59% of parents admitted to lying to their kids on a regular basis. Uh, and I'm not saying like, all right, these are probably small lies too. Like, sorry, the candy store's not open today. Like, uh, uh, we can't stop there. Sorry. Uh, Bluey is not available for one more episode. He has to go to bed too. You know, like those kind of things, right? Um, oh, sorry, we don't have time to play that one more game, right? I get that they're probably smaller, but there's still an average of uh, 59% of parents say daily they lie to their kids. Lying is a problem in our world today. And my hunch is that many of us, we tell far more lies than we are even aware of, and yet we try to show our honesty through our actions all the same. Uh, not, not too long ago, my daughter, I guess this was in the fall, so it was a little while ago, uh, my daughter came to me and she said, Dad, will you do something for me? And I can't remember what her request was. And I said, absolutely, honey. And she says, pinky promise? I was like, pinky promise? Where did you learn pinky promise from? You know, like, and she was like, pinky promise? And I couldn't say no, but in, in my mind, I, gave, I, I hooked my finger around her pinky. And I said, honey, if I say I'm going to do it, I promise you I will do it, right? But even that language, oh, I promise you, it like bears more weight, or a pinky promise bears more weight. Or uh, my, my, my kids will come in and say, I swear I didn't do it. They did it. Uh, that's what it always comes out to. But I swear, right? And that puts more weight on the midst of it. Or um, my, my kids were watching a show, and uh, the age old, across my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my, which is so weird, right? I mean, have you ever thought about that phrase? Like, why, why would that be the phrase, you know? But sure enough, that's what the TV show said. And they were like, what does that mean? I was like, it's like to... It's like a pinky promise, you know, and they, they got it. But, like, we do these things all the time to show, like, no, I'm being serious about what I'm saying. And can I tell you something about myself that you may not know? I hate lying. I mean, my kids know this. Close friends know this about me. I hate lying. Just tell me the truth, uh, and we'll deal with the consequences of that together. Like, but I, I hate hiding and covering up, and I believe that Jesus did not like it as well. But we're assuming that we're all on the same page when it comes to lying. What is lying? I believe lying is this. It's a false statement made knowingly with the intent to deceive. 
I think that's a big distinction around lying. It's knowingly making this kind of statement with the intent to deceive. There's been times where I've told people something and I thought it was true, but it turned out not to be true. I don't believe in that moment that I was lying. I think when, when we come and we are trying to deceive the person, that is when we are lying. It's not necessarily about the correctness of what we say, but about the intent of our heart. So if you're knowingly seeking to be deceitful or not completely truthful, then you would be lying in that moment. And there are a lot of reasons why people would lie. Again, as I was looking through some of the research, I read through an article around psychology today, and they said that uh, two of the primary reasons why people lie are, one, for fear of what will happen if they tell the truth. Simple fear of what would happen if, if the truth was actually discovered. And I believe that most of our lying is fear-based. I mean, think of when you're growing up as a kid. You tell a lie to your parents to get out of being in trouble, right? That is a fear-based lie. I don't want to deal with the consequences of this. So we lie to avoid trouble. The second biggest reason people lie was the desire for personal gain. And so we lie when we think we are going to gain something that we want. Our desire for something encourages us to lie. And so we use this kind of common rationalization that is tied to our, our dominant narratives. Ultimately, here's what we're saying. We're saying, my needs are more important than anything else. And so I want what I want, and I'm going to lie to get that. So our lies are often motivated by our desire to get what we want or to avoid something that we don't want. And it's this, and it's this kind of idea that if the universe just revolves around us, then lying is justified. But what does Jesus say? This is kind of our cultural moment where lying is just the part of our lives. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not swear an oath at all. Don't swear an oath at all. This is an issue of making these kind of verbal promises and knowingly not following through. Because what was happening in Jesus' day is that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his time, they had created this whole system with a ton of loopholes. And so you would be able to go and you'd make an oath and it would, it would be followed through. But if you didn't follow through, you could kind of go and be like, sorry, I had actually swore by this instead. And so in the law, what they had said is, if you swear by the Lord, you had to do it. It was a requirement, an obligation. You had to follow through on it. But what people were doing is they were swearing by heaven instead of swearing by the Lord. Or they would swear by the earth instead of swearing by heaven. Or they would swear by Jerusalem instead of swearing by the earth. Or they would swear by the hairs on their head instead of swearing by Jerusalem. You see what was happening? And then they would even get more into it. They would go make an oath, and they say, no, I swear on Jerusalem that I will follow through on that. And then they go to, you know, their neighbor over here, and they say, no, I'm going to swear. I swear on the temple in Jerusalem that I'll do it. And then they don't follow through on person one. They're like, what the heck? Like, Sorry, I swore by the temple in Jerusalem for him, so that, that's greater. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about loopholes. It's not about crossing your fingers and holding it behind your back. No, no, no. It's about not swearing an oath at all. And really what Jesus is saying, he's saying don't break your oaths or anything that you, promises that you make because God is everywhere. Really, this, this kind of lesson is, a, is a, a lesson on theology. 
on God's omnipresence, which means that God is everywhere. And what he's saying is none of these places, none of these loopholes escapes God's direct presence. Swearing by heaven is not not less than swearing by God because heaven is God's throne. Swearing by earth is not less than swearing by heaven because it's God's footstool. Swearing by Jerusalem is not less than swearing by either heaven or earth because it's the city of our great king. And swearing by your head is just not wise because you can't make one hair black or one hair white. And God knows every single hair that you have on your head. So what Jesus is inviting his people to understand is that you are invited to be a people who instill kingdom honesty in their hearts. He's inviting you and I to be people of his kingdom who are so honest that there is no need for oaths. Your yes simply means yes, and your no simply means no. That is the invitation. It's not just about doing this, but it's a, the posture of your heart is transformed so that honesty just naturally flows out of your being. And isn't this exactly what Jesus did in the midst of all of it? He continually pointed towards the Father. He continually allowed this to be true of him and told the truth. And because we know him as the truth, we are now able to go and proclaim truth to the people around us. So we're invited to be people who speak the truth to one another because we know this truth. And Jesus moves us on in this passage and invites us into another way of becoming with the people people of the kingdom when he writes this in verses 38 through 42. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not even resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants, you, wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, this is an invitation from Jesus to become someone. And that invitation is to become a person who shows mercy. There's lots of different ways to kind of talk about this, but I believe that mercy is on display in these passages. And when we know that our words and our actions, they are meant to go together. It's not just that we're supposed to speak one way and then act another way. No, no, no. What we understand is that our words and actions are often companions together in our lives. Or have, as some have said before, our, we need to talk the talk and walk the walk. This is what Jesus is doing here. He is inviting us to walk this walk. And he begins to shift a little bit more in these last couple passages to our actions. And in this moment, in Matthew 5, he says, our actions discuss or or reveal our hearts. And what he's doing is he's directly and kind of partially quoting from a couple of passages in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 24, verses 19 through 20, here's what it says. It's not up on the screens. uh, But it says, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Right? This is what Jesus is quoting. Deuteronomy 19.21 shows a different, uh, or the same heart of this, but maybe a different way in kind of bringing it about. It says, show no pity. Life for life. 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This was the heartbeat, the way that the Israelites walked through legal proceedings in their day. They would go, and if someone, if someone had lost a cow as a result of an accident, guess what you got from the person who caused the accident? A cow, right? You replace that. Or you got to go and kill their cow, right? The idea was equal retribution. This was the idea. Fair and balanced judgments and sentences. And we all know this from an early, early age, right? I mean, I remember as kids, I would get into, like, arguments and fights with my brother. My mom would come into the picture and become the judge, jury, and executioner in all of the stances, right? And I, and I remember one specific time. I don't remember the, why we fought. There's probably no reason at all. But I remember my youngest brother, who's, like, nine years younger than me, or he is nine years younger than me, um, I, I did something to him, and my mom said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to do the same thing back to him. I think I like pinched him in the arm. He's like, I want to pinch him in the arm. And I was like, darn it. You know, like I wish I didn't do that, right? And we know this, right? I remember seeing, uh, seeing girls that I would go to college with. They were like, is that my shirt? Well, I get one of your shirts now too. You know, they're arguing over clothes. My, my wife talks about this with her sisters all the time. They would take each other's clothes and, well, you took one, I take another. We do this all the time in all sorts of things. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is its origin. The idea here is known as lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retaliation. And this, this law was in effect often throughout the ancient world. And it led to two fundamentals of the law in Israel, which, I, again, is required retribution. You get this requirement to retaliate, but then it has to be equal as well. And I don't believe that Jesus is just opposing legal applications here. I believe he's opposing its use to justify acts of personal, personal revenge and vengeance towards the people around us. And again, we live in this world all the time. But what does he mean when he says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer? What Jesus is saying is, do not relate to the people who have wronged you as enemies, but rather relate to them as neighbors. And we know what Jesus is inviting us into because of his view of neighbors. When someone comes to him and says, what's the greatest commandments in all of Scripture? His response is, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus has a high view of neighbor, the people around us. And he's saying, don't relate to the people as enemies. Relate to them as neighbors. Be loving, not hateful towards them. Be kind, not harsh. But again, this is not how people saw the world then, and I really believe it's not how we see the world today. In fact, oftentimes there's a gap between the ancient world and our world today. And in this scenario, I don't believe that there's much of a gap at all. I think in many ways, it is really easy for us to see the people around us and choose to show no mercy. But Jesus, he knows how to get to our hearts. 
He knows to how to avoid this show-no-pity mentality, or maybe a modern version would be, I don't get mad, I get even mentality. He knows to surpass that, and he gives us opportunities to be creative with our acts of grace. And what follows in this passage after he says, do not resist an evildoer, is he shows us four examples of how we can not resist an evildoer. He shows us four examples of ways that we can be creative in our acts of mercy. And I really believe that that's a challenge for you and I today. It's not just to turn the other cheek. It's to be creative in our acts of showing mercy to the people who have wronged us. That turning the other cheek is exactly that. And so let's look at these four examples. The first one is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Here's the thing about Jesus' world. No one in the ancient world used their left hand. That was reserved for bathroom use. And so everyone greeted one another, ate with their right hand. And so if the right hand is only used and you are slapped against the right cheek, what happens is you are being backhanded by the person's right hand. Because if they opened-handed hit you from the front, they would hit your left. But to backhand you would hit your right hand, or your right cheek. And so what Jesus is saying is this act is meant to be disrespectful and embarrassing to the person who is being hit. And Jesus says, don't retaliate with a punch in the face. He says, no, 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 instead, be creative. Re- reveal this act of injustice for what it is and turn and say, here's the other cheek as well. And in doing so, people would look and say, what is this? What is going on? I mean, even the person who had slapped would ha- step back and go, ooh, that's, that's too much. I don't know if I would do that as well. And so Jesus is showing a creative act of mercy to reveal the injustice for what it is. And what he's doing is he's saying, we don't want to embarrass you, but we want to reveal this and, 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 and show you this creative act of mercy. I could hold you as an enemy for seeking to disrespect and embarrass me, but instead I will offer you mercy and not fight back in this moment. And again, Jesus models this perfectly for us. In his trial before he's crucified, he is beaten and never once retaliated, but continued to come and pray for the people around him. Jesus moves on to saying, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Males in Jesus' day wore two layers of clothes. They wore an undergarment, which was kind of equivalent to a shirt, and then they wore an outer garment, which was equivalent to a cloak or a coat at that time. And what was allowable in Jesus' day was that you could be sued for your inner garment, but the outer garment was off limits because people would use that not just for a shirt, but it would be a coat to keep them warm. It would be uh, bedding for when they would sleep outside in kind of a camping scenario. And so the the coat or the cloak was off limits. And what Jesus is saying is if someone takes your shirt, sues you for your shirt, take off the coat as well and give it to them. Allow yourself, allow yourself to be radically unselfish. Allow this attitude of this radical generosity to just be part of it. But in so doing, yes, it would be a despicable thing for someone to sue you for your shirt. Jesus says, in that moment, reveal their injustice for what it is and give them even more than what they've asked for. In this moment, you show creative 
acts of mercy. In the next example, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two mile. You ever heard the phrase, go the extra mile? Here's its origin. You see, and what's happening here is a social custom is at play. The Roman Empire was ruling over the Jewish people, and so the Roman soldiers had the ability to kind of requisition anyone who was a Jew at the time and require them to carry their pack for them 1,000 paces. That's what equated to a mile in Jesus' time. And so anyone, any Roman soldier, could come and tap a Jewish person on the shoulder and say, I need you to carry this pack in the name of Rome and in that moment, for the next 1,000 steps, they were required to walk with the Roman soldier. But if you did anything further beyond that, it was unlawful. And Jesus says, in those moments, just continue to walk. Continue to walk the additional 1,000 paces. Go beyond that extra mile with them. Show them radical acts of mercy. Obligation dictated the first mile, but compassion dictates the second mile. And finally, Jesus shares this, this final example when he says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He's describing people in this moment who have legitimate need because Israelites, one of the worst things you could do in that time was to beg for your needs. And so if you see someone begging, they have a legitimate need. And Jesus is inviting his people to, when they see a need, to go and meet that need. We have helped, we've been helped by our Heavenly Father, so we therefore go and help the people who have needs around us. We have been forgiven as sinful beggars with the greatest uh, act of love, and Jesus is inviting us to show others this great act of love and mercy. So Jesus, in these teachings of examples, he's offering a better and higher way than Lex Talionis. Instead, he's offering this kind of brilliant way to respond to abuse and attack from a position of kingdom security. So in each of these four illustrations, Jesus is teaching us the same thing. In the kingdom of God, we do not need to retaliate because there is a better way. So instead, we show creative acts of mercy we are generous. We break the status quo, all because Jesus himself did this as our model. And in the kingdom, there are no enemies. There are only neighbors. There are only opportunities for us to show these creative acts of mercy. The work on our part is to discover or come up with a better way forward. And I just wonder, how would our days look if we walked into them looking for creative acts of mercy that we could show to the people who are maybe hardest to love in our lives. This is what the kingdom is full of. It's full of people who speak the truth and show mercy to one another. And Jesus continues this discussion around our actions in our relationships by discussing his most radical concept in the kingdom yet so far. In verses 43, he begins by saying this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only people who greet you, 
Are, are, what are you doing more? Even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is inviting us in these moments to be a person who loves until it hurts. In many ways, this passage is a summary of all the different passages that we've been talking to up until this point. Jesus has discussed so many things, and at the center of each of those things is the centrality of love. And in the same fashion, Jesus begins to quote these Old Testament verses. In Leviticus 19.18, you will find this command, love your neighbor as yourselves. But you want to know what you will not find in all of Scripture? The command to hate your enemy. Nowhere in all of Scripture is that found. And it wasn't until the 1940s and the 1950s when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that we found these, these writings and teachings from this uh, sect of religious leaders in Jesus' day known as the Essenes. And in that, those writings, those teachings around Jesus' time, we find this exact command, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And so what, it's, what uh, scholars believe is that in this time, what Jesus or what the scribes and religious leaders did is they came and they made sure that they took a law, but then they kind of created a cultural norm to be paired with this law. And so Jesus comes and he takes this cultural teaching and he flips it on its head. He says, don't just love love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in Jesus' day, when they heard the word neighbor, they would have thought of their Jewish brother or sister. And when they heard the word enemy, they would have heard, they would have thought of the Roman leader or the Roman uh, reign at the time. It was easy for them to identify their neighbors. It was easy for them to identify their enemies, but it was really hard for them to love them, love them and pray for them. I think it's really hard for us to identify our neighbors today. Yeah, sure, it's easy for us to identify the big ones. Like, ISIS is an easy enemy. Like, they, they continue to hurt people continually, constantly. North Korea or Russia, if, you know, we are against these kind of things that are happening. But what about the smaller enemies? Jokingly, yesterday I played in a golf outing, um, and our Milford pastor, uh, Paul Jenkinson, he was there. And I leaned up behind him. I said, I'm coming for you. For the next four hours, we're no longer friends. We're enemies, you know? And he won. Uh, and so I lost. So actually, I, I think uh, I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I just made him play. I woke the, the golfer in him. Um, and so, but all this to say, right? It's, it's easy at a golf outing to say, like, oh, we're all enemies. But, like, literally, like, who are the enemies in your life today? Maybe the people with div different political views? The coworker who you found out kind of is, is trashing you behind your back to your boss? Maybe that person who was close to you who really hurt you? What about that person that you try to avoid when you see them? In these verses that Jesus is communicating to us, love is a verb. It's an action word. It's also in the present imperative, which means it's a word that's, or a command that is supposed to have continuous action with it. And the same is true for pray. And so loving and praying for the people around us is not meant to be done once in a while, but rather it's meant to be a habit that of the people who desire to usher in the kingdom of heaven. 
And it's with this understanding that Jesus is inviting his followers to commit themselves to be with their enemies. And this requires proximity and attentiveness. You become the sort of person who longs for and works for the good of your enemies. I really believe that that's what love is. We cannot just reduce love to be something that happens once in a while or something that we do when we tolerate someone. No, no, no. Instead, we need to strive for them to be the person that God desires them to be. That is truly loving them. And loving someone doesn't make you a child of God. I know this language in this passage is kind of confusing. It doesn't make you a child of God. Rather, it shows that you are a child of God. And that's really what Jesus is getting at. This is central to the life in the kingdom of heaven. And just like the sun rises on good and evil people, and just like rain comes to righteous and unrighteous people, Jesus is saying we are meant to love everyone in this way. Our neighbors and our enemies. The people who are difficult and the people who are easy to love. The people who are kind and the people who are harsh. The people who are generous and the people who are selfish. The people who are compassionate and the people who are heartless. The people who align with our views and the people who don't. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we live distinctly different lives as we display the character of our heavenly Father to the people around us as we live as salt in an impure world and light in a darkened world. So again, I ask you, who are your enemies and what are you doing to turn your enemies into neighbors? This is the invitation of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived and we are able to look like him as our model and our example for how to love until it hurts. That is the invitation of this passage, to be a people who love until it hurts. So this is what Jesus has said to us. In our relationships, we speak truth, we show mercy, and we love until it hurts. But Jesus ends this passage with a simple invitation. It's a simple invitation that seems impossible when you read it. And the invitation is simply this, be perfect. <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks, Jesus. Like, that's all I got to do. No, no, don't just be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, cool. Okay, so perfection is now the standard that which I'm aiming for. Is this even possible? What's so interesting is that many people believe that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was originally written in Hebrew because it's primarily to a Hebrew or Jewish audience. And so they believe that Jesus in this passage was not quoting just this verse of being perfect, but rather he was quoting Leviticus 19.2 that says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And if that is the quote, if this is what Jesus is getting at, this word of perfect and holy actually make a lot of sense in this context. What Jesus is inviting us into is this opportunity to be complete in our, in our transformation to him, to be set apart for his purposes. The Greek word for perfect there is teleos, and it means complete, perfect, mature, and full development. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, and it means to be set apart, dedicated, and consecrated. 
And I really believe that what's going on in this verse is that Jesus is inviting you, he's inviting me as members of his kingdom to reflect the character of God, to be complete and mature in that reflection. And when we do this, when we live this way out of a transformed heart, we will be so different. We'll be set apart from the rest of the world where they will watch and they will see and they will look and they will say, what is happening in this community? There's no anger. Like men and women, they're interacting out of true desire and best for each other. Their relationships are whole. They're, they're defined by their honesty, their truth, their mercy towards one another. They love one another so sacrificially. They're encouraging each other to show mercy in ways that I've never even imagined or heard of. I mean, he is inviting us into a whole new way of experiencing the kingdom of heaven right now. And when we do that, we are perfect in our maturity towards him. We're set apart. Is there room for us to grow? Yeah, there's room for us to grow. There's always room for us to grow. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I've been. I'm so grateful for that. It's a process and it's a journey, but in that process and journey, there's a maturing that happens. I really believe that that's the invitation that Jesus is giving to you and I. Who and who we will be and what we will be someday in eternity should impact how we love and conduct ourselves today. We are to be what we are becoming. So, this is where Jesus rests and ends this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He ends with a simple invitation for us to be like our Father in heaven whose kingdom we are bringing to earth as it is in heaven. And we are set apart from, the, from being in this kingdom, from the rest of the world, to pursue a heart that is complete in the love of God the Father, the life of Jesus, and the work of Holy Spirit. And the fruit of this is in a heart that is as Jesus has shown us to this point, not angry with the people around us. It's a, it's a heart that guards ourselves from lust and divorce, is truthful and merciful and loving in our relationships. But again, how do we do this? I believe we allow our hearts to be transformed to reflect the kingdom in, in us. And we do this when we spend time being with Jesus. As we spend time being with him, we will ultimately become like him. And as we become like him, we will naturally do the very things that he did. So my question is this. How are we doing in our relationships with the people around us? Would you define yourself as perfect or set apart in your relationships? Have you allowed what Jesus has done for you to transform the way that you live in relationship with the people around you? If the answer is no, then maybe we just simply need to ask Jesus to come and work in our hearts. We need to speak Jesus over our relationships. We need to speak Jesus over our hearts. We need to speak Jesus over our minds, our words, our hands, our feet, so that the transformation comes and our relationships bear that fruit of transformation. When our hearts have been transformed in this way, we will see this watching world ask us for how they can be transformed as well. I believe that we will experience one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have, a transformed heart. So friends, 
I believe that there is a world that is walking in darkness that needs the light of the gospel brought to them. I believe that there is an impure world that needs a salt to come and make it pure again. We have that opportunity in the ways that we live. Be perfect seems impossible, but it's very possible through the Spirit's work in our hearts, being transformed into the image of our Father. So in these next few moments, we're going to sing a song, and I want to challenge you to speak Jesus over the areas of your lives that still need transformation. Maybe it is in your relationships. Come and speak Jesus over those areas. There's a watching world that is desperate for the gospel, and we have that answer, the gospel, to bring to them through our relationships. Father, we come and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you give us a picture of yourself. We thank you that in all the th ways that you came and you, you taught us, you modeled it perfectly in your life. You spoke truth to the people around us. You showed mercy in unimaginable ways. And you literally loved us until it hurt. And even as you hung on the cross and looked into the eyes of the people who nailed you there, you prayed for their forgiveness. Father, may Hill City be a community of people who are formed in your image as a result of the work that you're doing in our lives. And would that spill into our relationships with the people around us? with the people that we declare as enemies in our hearts and our minds. Lord, make them neighbors. Give us opportunities to speak truth to the people around us. Allow us to look more and more like you with the people around us. Father, we need you, and therefore we declare your life, your death, your resurrection over these areas of our lives so that you would do with them as you desire. So, Lord, we respond in worship now. We pray for all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we declare Jesus in this moment?